Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. While you do that, thank you for uh, your partnership and your prayers. As uh, the team I was a part of went to Ukraine last week, uh, it was a fruitful week. Our team was made up of, there were, there were, ended up, there were supposed to be 11 of us, I think, before we went. Three people got sick before we were able to, uh, before we left, and so the team was narrowed down to nine, but um, God's over that too. So um, we had uh, one pediatrician, one general practitioner doctor. Uh, by the way, she's um, 77 years old and has been on mission trips all over the world. She goes with Bobby and Wanda just all over the place. She was cool. Um, then we had um, a dentist. We had a fifth-year pharmacy student from Campbell who uh, served as our pharmacist. Uh, and then you had skilled clinicians like me and a couple of other guys who were, <laughs> who were there as a part of that team. Um, so we saw 215, 16 patients over the span of four days. Uh, then part of the team did children's camps. Uh, where they had like 50 kids uh, every day for four days ministering to kids from the communities, the little villages there, but also um, the IDP children from some of the refugee camps were part of those camps. It was a, it was a good week. The region we were in in Ukraine, in western Ukraine, is, is a primarily a Hungarian-speaking region. It's, it's, the demographic are weird. This region used to be part of Hungary and Romania until the period of history during World War I and II, and it became part of Ukraine. They don't speak Ukrainian, and they're not Russian in their culture or Ukrainian in their culture. They're Hungarian. So it's a very unique situation um, there. So we were lots of times translating to Hungarian from English and then from Hungarian to Ukrainian. Um, and so it was, it was interesting there. Pray for Ukraine. It is a troubled place, and not just because of the war. The war makes it much more so, and what's going on with the war just exacerbates problems and underlying cultural issues that are a part of Ukraine and have been for its whole history. Um, the Hungarian-speaking people, uh, their heart really is not in the war that's going on um, because they see themselves in Ukraine but not necessarily Ukrainian citizens. Um, there's great animosity there between Ukrainians and Hungarians and between gypsies and other cultural groups there. Um, I pray for the churches that are there. One church that I spoke in, the pastor said 80% of his baptized members had left the country and would not come back. They're making new lives for themselves in other European countries. So churches are struggling. Um, I, was, I was in a gypsy church pastored by the same individual who told me that his Hungarian members had left and they don't like each other. That's a mild way of putting it. They never meet together. They never serve together. They never worship together. They won't have anything to do with each other. It gave me clear pictures of what we see in the book of Ephesians that we're talking about God trying to create in Christ one new man. So there's underlying cultural, ethnic, racial issues that are just being multiplied because of the war. I wrote this in my prayer journal one day and shared this with the team in the morning devotion. Here's what I wrote. I said, this is a spiritual battlefield within a war zone. The issues between Russia and Ukraine, between the Ukrainians and the Hungarians, between the Hungarians and the gypsies are not flesh and blood issues. These are at their root spiritual issues. 
And it is with eyes of faith that we see this reality. And it's with spiritual weapons and prayer that we fight this battle. Ukraine is only able to stay in this military fight because of the United States. They, everybody told us that. If it were not the support for the support that they get from the United States, it would have been over a long time ago. But they tire. They're getting tired of the fight. They don't see a positive outcome coming from it. And even that is a spiritual battle. It's a battle over the heart, over the attitude, over the mindset that we have. Which brings us to our text in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at it. I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray again. Lord, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for, like you did in the book of Revelation, opening up for us a window into the heavenly places so that we can see what's going on around us. So we pray, Lord, I pray, just as Paul did at the beginning of Ephesians, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see this truth, to see these realities. Lord, to maybe shake us and wake us up, but then to give us confidence and courage, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And it's for his sake and his glory that I pray that. Amen. So, in Ephesians, we started out, remember, before the foundation of the world, with this perspective of the heavenly places of who we are in Christ and of what God has done for us in Christ in this heavenly realm, in these heavenly places. We saw that in Christ we've been called, we've been adopted, we've been gifted this inheritance. We've been bound together by his Holy Spirit within the body. We've this beautiful, amazing picture of what God has done for us in Christ. And then we're told we kind of come down from that heavenly level into this world that we live in. And we're called in Ephesians 4 to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So in the first three chapters, we're up in the heavenly places. In chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, we're down here on the earth. And we're walking out this calling, walking out this faith that God has called us to. But now all of a sudden, we're 
back up in the heavenlies. I can't imagine what it must have been like for those who heard this letter the first time that it was read them. And it's cruising along. They're thinking about what's going on. They're thinking about what Paul is saying. And then all of a sudden, there's this jolt. There's this reality that comes to them of what it is that Paul is talking about. This stark reality of hostile powers. This stark reality that there's things going on around us. And Paul's purpose here, listen church, his purpose here is not for us to have fodder to write fictional stories. His purpose here is not for us to all of a sudden be fascinated, if you will, and captivated by some spiritual fiction that somebody might come up with. It's fierce enough and it's stark enough And these hostile spiritual powers aligned against us are powerful enough that Paul's point here is not spiritual fantasy. It's so that we would know the truth and rest in the reality of who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. He wants us to understand our enemy, to stand against him, and then to overcome through Christ. That's his point here. You see, God's eternal plan that we saw in the beginning of Ephesians, that there would be a new society founded on Jesus, right? And all things would be united in Christ. The devil does all he can to destroy that plan. We saw in the beginning that God is breaking down walls and barriers of different races, nationalities, and cultures. The devil does all he can to rebuild those walls and rebuild those divisions and to remind us of those differences. He does all he can to sustain these divisions. The Bible tells us that God intended for his reconciled, redeemed people to live in harmony and holiness. The devil does all he can to divide us and cause us to sin. God's plan for our lives and our marriages and our families, for our work, God's plan for us is to reflect the gospel and to bring glory to Christ. So the devil will do all he can to attack our families and to diminish, if he cannot destroy at least, our testimony. So that's the picture. This this war is real. And this enemy is powerful. And our victory is certain, church. That's, that's the promise that we have here. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? That's the promise that he gave us. It's in our unity in him that we experience that. That we find the reality of that. So, let's look at the text here. It begins with this one word, finally, finally. Our walk in Christ is not a walk in the park. It's not a walk in the park. It is a war. It is a spiritual conflict that is ongoing. There is no truce. There is no quarter. There are no rules. It's a war. And the word finally here connects, I think, what has come before all of these realities, all this picture that we've seen, everything that we are promised in Christ, that we walk out in this world, the provision and the plan, the purposes of God, all of those are lived out and experienced within the context of opposition, in the context of this spiritual battle that's going on. 
And what follows it, walking in unity and walking in care for one another, being filled with the Spirit, growing and maturing, all of this is, is within the context of the reality of this war. Now, some have translated, and I think there's credence to this, that this word finally can also carry the idea of for the remaining time or from now on. And what that would mean is the period in between Christ's first advent And his second coming is a war zone. That in the meantime, this is what you're going to be dealing with between his first coming and his second coming. So here's the fact. We have this beautiful life that we are promised in Christ. We have this new life in him. We have have this life, this walk, this unity, this purpose, this inheritance, all of this. And here's the danger. Many of us as Western Smart people see this world as mechanical, we see it as scientific, we see it as pragmatic, and we kind of dismiss this. This whole idea of demons and spiritual warfare and things like that, we kind of dismiss it. On the other hand, there are those who are obsessed with it. There's a demon in my ice dispenser. No, there's not. It's broke. (laughs) We're obsessed, you know. We go from one extreme to the other. And and this text should help us with that pendulum swing and, and understand this whole process, this whole perspective that Paul gives us here. Let me define spiritual warfare, and I'll define it from Chuck Lawless, a great little book that he wrote on spiritual warfare as it's seen, this whole spiritual dimension throughout the storyline of of. of the Bible. And I'll, I'll post this. I didn't put this up, but here's what spiritual warfare is, is as Lawless describes it. It is the ongoing battle between the church and the devil and his forces, with the church standing in the armor of God, defensively resisting the devil, and offensively proclaiming the gospel in a battle that is already won. I'm going to read that again. It's the ongoing battle between the church and the devil and his forces. With the church standing in the armor of God, defensively resisting the devil, and offensively proclaiming the gospel in a battle that's already won. So Paul says, finally, church, finally, be awake. Listen to this. Be strong in the Lord, he says next, and in the strength of his might. Just take this phrase at a time. Strong in the Lord. Strength for this spiritual battle is not our own. Now, I think we all recognize that. It is the Lord's strength. Be strong in the Lord. Remember, we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it tells us in chapter 1. It tells us that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We are predestined for adoption through Christ, Paul tells us. We have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. In him, we have an inheritance. And it says in verse 13 that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So tell me something. If it is in Christ that we are spiritually blessed, in Christ that we are adopted, in Christ that we are forgiven, in Christ that we are redeemed, in Christ that we are made rich and wealthy, if you will, in the spiritual blessings of God, why would he put us in a battle on our own? 
Why would the battle be different? It's not. Be strong in the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who literally pours his power into me. And that's what he's saying here. By virtue of your union with Christ and my union with Christ. By by virtue of our union as the church with Christ, we have access to this power. This is the promise. Go back and look at Ephesians chapter 1. I've been praying that this week. For us here at our church, I've been praying it for other pastors and other churches. This, this prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 and starting in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and in saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What kind of power? Glad you asked. The immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And in chapter 2, not only was that great power enough to raise Christ from the dead and seat him in the heavenly places, it's enough to take us out of our spiritual tombs who are dead in our trespasses and sins and seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. So that's the power we're talking about here. Strength of his might. He just keeps putting these phrases together. So what he's talking about here is the internal strength and the ability to carry it out. All right? It's, this, it's not just an inner strength. It is that. It's not just muscle, but it's the know-how and the ability to exercise that strength and to bring it to bear in the fight. That's what we have in Christ. The strength for this spiritual war is not our own. It's his. And the armor for this fight is not our own. It's his. The whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil is what Paul writes that we are to put on. Now, a key point in this section, and and we'll see this. So we're going to do a three-week series on this this concept, this, this reality of spiritual warfare, okay? And so we're kind of doing this overview in the first three verses. We'll look at the pieces of armor or the whole armor of God, what that entails next week. And then after that, we'll look at this this whole foundational aspect of it, which is prayer. So that's where we're going here. But the key point in this section is keeping our focus on Christ and this biblical picture, listen, of our God as a warrior. Our God as a warrior. He is our shepherd. He is our Father. He is our King. He is our Redeemer. He is our peace. He is our husband. He is a warrior as well. And this is the picture that I believe Paul has in mind. Yes, some commentators and preachers emphasize, I'm sure I've taught it in the past, this picture of this mighty Roman soldier clothed in all of the armor that the Romans could put on a man. And it was impressive. And it was, it was powerful. But the picture here is not on an individual soldier. The picture here is on an army with a mighty, mighty champion as their commander. And the picture here is of this well-equipped army redeemed by Christ, whom Christ is their champion. And so all these armor pieces that Paul mentions here, while they are a part of a Roman soldier's battle wear, 
They're also a picture of what the Old Testament has already told us God is like. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In Isaiah 59, listen to what the Lord says. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. It says in verse 17 of Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Later on in Isaiah chapter 52, it says, How beautiful are the feet of him that brings good news. That's this picture of being shod with the gospel that we'll see as Paul lays out these different parts of this armament that we have. What was it in Revelation 19 and 20 that we saw? We saw this this great champion of ours, the Lord Jesus Christ on this white horse with a sword, with a sword coming out of his mouth. So Paul's picture here, I believe, is of our warrior champion God. And that when we are in Christ, we are clothed in the armor of Christ. And we stand in Christ, or we don't stand at all. Put on the whole armor of God. And this armor is ours through our union with Christ. Through our oneness with Him. The next phrase says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Four times, wait, one, two, three, I'm sorry, five times in one verse, against, 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 against. Do you see? (laughs) There's no joining together with this. Paul says, how can light and dark be together? All right? So there's this picture here. Understand this is supernatural or supranatural. It is greatly far above the natural realm. All right? That's, that's, it's a spiritual enemy in a spiritual struggle. Let me invite you to take your Bible and just go back to the book of Revelation for just a second. And look at Revelation chapter 12. We had this picture as we were working our way through the book of Revelation of this amazing scene in Revelation chapter 12. This sign in heaven that John saw of a woman who was pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and she's giving birth. And he saw then another sign. A great, he says, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So here is this picture, this spiritual picture of Jesus, his entry into this world, and of Satan and his opposition against that from the get-go. His opposition of that from the very beginning. It says in verse 4, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child. (laughs) Not just any child. Look, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So there in verse 5 is the whole incarnation. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the ascension of Christ after his resurrection. All of that in one verse. He was caught up to God and to the throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Where she is placed, where she, for a place prepared by God, where she is nourished for 1,260 days. And then, all of this goes on. Then Satan is thrown down to the earth, Revelation tells us. John tells us here in Revelation. And it says in verse 10, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And so the rest of the chapter gives us this picture of the serpent being thrown down to the earth, still trying to go up against the woman, but she is rescued. And the dragon became furious, it says in verse 17, with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's the church. So the devil is thrown down out of heaven and is raging Knowing his time is short to those who follow this king that was born. It's a spiritual war. And so this perspective that we have, this big picture perspective from Revelation, is what we have here in Ephesians in this trench level perspective. That's the picture that we have. And so understanding this, that our spiritual foe is, a, is just that. It is a spiritual foe. And notice how it's described. Notice how Satan and, his, and his, his army, if you will, are described. Rulers and authorities. These are spa- powerful spiritual entities. But recognize, I think, what this text is teaching us. That behind the snake in the garden, behind the Pharaoh in Egypt, behind the Babylonians and the Assyrians as they went against Israel, Behind Persia and Greece and Rome. Behind Herod as he sought to kill all the male children. Behind Hitler. Behind Pol Pot. Behind every regime and every government and every ruler. There is a spiritual entity. There is a spiritual authority. And these powerful spiritual entities and authorities rule and reign. He says next, cosmic powers over this present darkness. One of my professors, David Garland, said, In ancient literature, world-ruling gods and the spirit beings who were to have their say or ruled over that part of the cosmos under their control. So there's there's this picture here, this understanding. And I don't understand it, and I think we have to be careful to go too far in this, but I believe this is true. What happened in Daniel 10? In Daniel 10, here's what we read. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. This is the angel speaking to Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia. 
and came to you to make you understand what it is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. This understanding of, of territorial rulers, if you will, of, of cosmic powers over geographic regions, I don't know. And there's disagreement about that. I think there's biblical precedent and biblical truth to show us that there is this spiritual entity of evil behind what we see taking place in government offices and ruling and carrying on in the world. There's a spiritual reality of evil behind someone like Putin. But there's also spiritual evil and power that comes to bear in every human government, in every human governor and president and leader. There's that reality. And we're up to open our eyes and see that reality. He summarizes all of this, I think, with that last phrase, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think this is just a generic description. It's a comprehensive picture of the spiritual nature and the evil intentions of what's going on in a realm that we cannot see, but that is raging. It's going on around us. These are not humans. This is not human power. And it cannot be attacked or withstood with human tactics or human strategies. This world and those in it, listen to this, this world and those in it who are outside of Christ are under the sway of these principalities and powers. They are under the sway of that. Ephesians chapter 2 says that all of us outside of Christ once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. Do we see that reality? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? John tells us in 1 John 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies, he says, in the power of the evil one. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. So we are dealing with powerful, powerful enemies, more powerful than any of us and more powerful than any single church. Do we understand that? But they are not more powerful than God. They are not more powerful than our Christ. They are supremely cunning. His schemes, he says, his methods and his strategies. Those are not new. Paul later tells us that we're not to be unaware of those in 2 Corinthians 2. Don't let Satan outwit you. You have the book. You have the strategy. You have the reality of what's going on. Don't be caught by surprise. His strategies have not changed. He lied in the garden and he lies today. He questioned the goodness of God in the garden. He questions the goodness of God today. He lifts up and magnifies humanity. He did it in the garden and he does it today. He makes much of us and makes little of God. And there's great danger in that. And that's been his strategy from the beginning. He he infiltrates. He lies. He takes God's good gifts and perverts them. And causes us to be hungry and thirsty for the things that this world would offer. Instead of hungry and thirsty for righteousness sake. These are the pictures that we have here. 2 Corinthians 2 says, don't be outwitted by him. Don't be unaware of his schemes. Earlier, Paul says he disguises himself as an angel of light. Recognize that. Recognize this on a personal level, okay? 
Recognize this attack. He minimizes sin, minimizes God, and wants you to look in the mirror and be impressed. He wants you to look into your heart and think, I've got it all together there. I can handle this. One writer said, he makes much of happy, apparently happy sinners who haven't yet repented. The prosperity of the wicked so that they forget the darker side or the future of what's going to happen. Satan persuades sinners that there are a lot worse sinners than they are. And he works to discourage us from our holy duties. He presents to the soul a twisted view of difficulties, of crosses, of afflictions and troubles of serving Christ. He wants us to understand how hard it's going to be. And he makes us bored and weary of godly duties. He says it's like getting up for a quiet time and listening to sermon. He persuades us that those will make no difference. He distracts us. On a personal level, that's the reality of what goes on. What about on a cultural level? Huh? Oh, my goodness. He deceives. He allures by his intelligence. He comes up with cults and false religions. He takes a little bit of biblical truth and multiplies it and perverts it. And comes up with Buddhism and Hinduism and Mormonism and all of these things that in some ways can look good. He comes up with pagan religions and animism and materialism. And he's clever. He stimulates people to think that sins like homosexuality are okay. And then he stimulates us to hate those who might fall into that sin. So he plays both sides. It's incredible. One writer said, we are up against a spiritual realm congested with demons, cluttered with angels, and permeated by diabolical powers. It is a spiritual battle. And it is a battle that's futile if we attempt it in our own. And it's a battle that's personal. Notice the word wrestle. We wrestle not, okay? There's no long-range bombs here. There's no Scud missiles. There's no submarines launching from 200 miles offshore. This is face-to-face, hand-to-hand, bloody combat. We wrestle, okay? Not against flesh and blood. So there's this idea that it is intensely personal. It is intensely personal. And we'll talk about it more in just a minute. It is also corporate. Which is why I just we sang that song by Martin Luther. They say that in Martin Luther's study, you can still go and look at the wall and see a dark spot on that wall where he picked up his inkwell and threw it at the devil. Threw it at the devil. There wasn't anybody standing there that you could see with physical eyes. But what Martin Luther saw is what he wrote about. Did we in our own strength confide? The battle would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing, you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. How many of you know what Lord Sabaoth means? I had to look it up, okay? So it's okay if you, if you raise your hand, I'll be impressed. If, if, if you're more humble than that, then don't raise it. Lord Sabaoth is that Hebrew word for the Lord of hosts, the champion and commander of God's armies. That's what you're singing when you sing Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same. And he will win the battle. Amen. That's, that's what Martin Luther wrote. And that's what we hold on to. 
We also hold on to what I read earlier out of the book of Colossians. This is not in any way, shape, fashion, or form dualism. This is not an equal power on one side fighting an equally powerful deity on the other. Okay? That is, that is not the picture. And what we have here that I read you from the book of Colossians, go back and look at it for just one second. What we have here is Satan and all of his horde and all of his demons being created by our God. All things were created through him and for him. Whether visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he is preeminent over them, sovereign over them, and they are defeated. And we hold to that truth. Just as we with spiritual eyes see into this realm of spiritual battle with spiritual eyes, we see this reality of our conquering king. And we hold to that. We must recognize that it's in Christ that we have power. It's in Christ that we are armored. It's in Christ that we stand. And that's where the text ends. Stand, it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. In verse 14, stand therefore. You get the picture? (laughs) We're standing. We are, yes, in a defensive position that is powerful, but we have an offensive gospel that we take to the nations, that we penetrate the darkness with the reality of that gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, I just read for you that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. But because of the great love with which he loved us, we have been made alive together with Christ and raised up and seated with Christ. So here's the deal, church. We live in two realms. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. That's who you are in Christ. But we also walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called here on this horizontal plane, here in this earth. And we are called to live and walk in this world, which, by the way, is a dark world. It's a broken, sinful world. And we are to walk in this dark, broken, sinful world as children of light, redeemed children of light, spirit-filled children of light. And that's how we're called to walk. And the word here, to stand, means not to give in, not to give up ground. John Stott said, wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. I prayed this morning, church, that we would open our eyes like Elisha prayed like his servant did in the Old Testament picture there in Second Kings. The servant of Elisha rose early in the morning. He looked out and he saw this army of horses and chariots all around, and it scared him to death. Alas, my master, he said, what shall we do? It's easy to feel that way, right? We see countries torn up by wars. We see families blown up by sin. We see children literally being torn apart before our eyes by the world's understanding of sexuality. 
We don't see the infants in the womb being torn apart, praise God. It's, it's, it, it's still happening. By the way, it's still happening in North Carolina. Do we want to be known as a state where you can get in your car and come get an abortion? I do not believe so. I digress. But it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. So Elisha's servant looked out and he goes, oh, my word. And Elisha said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Huh? I don't, all I see is the enemy. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Pray that for each other, church. Pray that the eyes of our oppressed and discouraged and seemingly defeated brothers and sisters would be opened up so that they could see our risen king and champion and the host of his army. Are you under attack? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Don't despair. Don't look to yourself. Don't stop participating, worshiping. Don't stop praying and do not fight alone. Do not leave us out of your fight. Do not leave out your life group, your accountability group, your church family. If you try to fight alone, you will be defeated alone. Are you under attack? Then resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He is not fleeing from you, by the way. He is fleeing from the God in you, from the Christ who fills you. He is fleeing from God around you. He is fleeing from the presence of Christ in you. The devil is defeated. He was defeated in the past by Michael and his angels. He was defeated on the cross by Christ. He was defeated at the resurrection. He will not stop the second coming. And he is under control. He is under dominion. If you're not under attack... I was reading one article this week that said maybe we should ask why. Esther Akalast, and I'm sure I brutalized her last name. She's a South African theologian. She's written a book about this understanding of these, these principalities and powers and these authorities. And she says we, we fall into two extremes. She says people in the South, and by South she means South America, kind of below the hemisphere. She said, they go to extremes on one side, and we in the West go to extremes on the other. Here's what she said when she speaks about the West, when she speaks about American Christians. Could it be that the presence of the demonic is muted, not because demons have ceased to exist or never were, but for the, but for the precise reason that no one fights against nothing? Perhaps as long as lukewarm faith exists, the demons need not be troubled, nor trouble themselves. And while the purpose of the Christian life is not to irritate demons or to incur their wrath through spiritual attacks, a quasi-Christianity that is washed out and bears little resemblance to the book of Acts and the epistles and is demonstrated by Christ in the Gospels is bankrupt of holiness and power, it is probable that the lack of knowledge and experience of the presence of the demonic in modern times, in our current times, has made it easy to turn Christianity into primarily a cerebral morality infusing code. 
instead of a life-transforming, Satan-crushing, God-glorifying, powerful religion or lifestyle that it was intended to be. So if everything's great and rosy and there's nothing going on, maybe we need to ask why. Maybe we're not doing anything or saying anything or witnessing to anybody or serving in any way that causes Satan and his horde to have the least amount of concern for us. Stand, church. One writer said, There is nothing more terrifying to Satan and his kingdom than a healthy church. It is a terrifying weapon. An organized, healthy, gospel-preaching, gospel-advancing local church is a terror to him. So he will fight in healthy local churches. He will seek to divide it. He will seek to cause factions and divisions within it. He will cause people within the church to go after godly pastors or elders or go after different things or create. And so factions and divisions stand church, stand together church, stand awake and alert church, as we'll see in the end of chapter 6, and pray. And put on the whole armor of God. That's what we'll see over the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together. Quietly. With, maybe with your eyes closed, but the hearts of your Have you seen the distractions this morning during the last 30, 45 minutes? Have you sensed that? God, we recognize, I believe, with eyes of faith that that's not any coincidence. That when we are opening your word and seeking to seeking you through your word, and when you are through your word opening up the eyes of faith and pulling back the veil so that we can see the reality of what goes on around us in a spiritual realm that's mostly hidden, Lord, we see that our enemy doesn't like that. But it glorifies you. It honors you as we gather, as we sing, as we pray, as we seek you through your word, as we hear it taught and preached, as we encourage and love and serve one another, as we gather as your church. God, we thank you that we can do that today. Father, I pray if there's anyone who's never trusted in Jesus, that today, right now, Lord, by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of their hearts to see the glory of you, O God, in the face of Christ. And hear the gospel message that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin, and rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell. And that through faith... Repenting of sin and trusting in your word, turning to Christ, God, that soul can be saved. I pray for that. And Father, I pray for us as your church today, too, as we prepare to come to this communion table. Father, thank you that we can. Thank you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.